thank you so much for listening to another episode of CX Chronicles Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Brady Chisana. Tune in each week as we listen to amazing customer-focused business leaders from across the world sharing their personal stories about their teams, tools, process, and feedback. Check us out at cxchronicles.com today or listen on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. ready to unlock your business's full potential? Join the global community of high-performing customer-facing and sales teams and leaders who trust Time to Reply's email optimization and analytics software to delight their customers and boost sales. Would you like to get 100% visibility of your team's email performance? Does your NPS tell you that customer satisfaction could do with some TLC? Are you burning leads because your team takes forever getting back to prospects? If you painfully side out yes, don't worry. Time to Reply is here to help. Their software empowers your team members to perform at their best all the time by showing them all of their live email stats and automatically prioritizing the emails and leads they need to attend to next. They'll never breach an SLA or burn a lead again. All of this happens without them leaving their inbox. Outlook, Office 365, and Google Workspace. No change to workflow, no training, instant insights, and stellar results. Team managers get real-time dashboards to track metrics like reply times, email volumes, resolution times, close rates, and follow-up cadences across shared and individual mailboxes. Leaderboards show who's on and who needs a nudge. Never feel like you're in the dark again. Get in touch with today's sponsor, Time to Reply, and get a personalized demo. Visit their website at www.timetoreply.com backslash CXE. Let them know that you heard about them on the CX Chronicles podcast. Don't just keep up, lead the way. Hey guys, are you looking for ways that you can improve your company's customer experience, customer success, and revenue operations? Then reach out to CX Chronicles. We created CXE after years of being practitioners ourselves, experiencing firsthand the challenges and opportunities of building and managing CXCS revenue operations team from the ground up at a scaling organization. Why work with CX Chronicles? Number one, you get executive level expertise and credibility from day one. We jump in and ramp up as quickly as you need us. Number two, you get actionable CTAs that will maximize your CX and CS ROI. We investigate and audit the economics of your existing CX and CS structure and determine how it can be optimized. And number three, check out our amazing CX and CS focused SaaS partners. We're working with Salesforce, HubSpot, Sturdy, Zendesk, Customer, Help Scout, Churn Zero, Freshworks, and more. Reach out to CXE today, guys. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the CX Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Brady Chizana. Super excited for today's show, guys. We have Nicole Panera joining us. Nicole, say hello to the CX Nation. Hello, everyone. So, guys, Nicole's got a super duper cool story, and I'm gonna let I'm gonna let her tell it. But just to give um, a quick background, I met Nicole recently. Um, she is doing so many incredible things, but also she was giving me this whole light into the world of being one of the premier partners of HubSpot, who's one of our one of our partners here at CXC, and she's built this incredible business. It's now several businesses um, from the things that she's, she's learned with working with customers, working with teammates, working across all these different industries, and I'm pumped to have her here. So, Nicole, why don't you start off today's show? Spend a couple minutes. Give us, I mean, you got all this awesome stuff in your background. 
Give us the stepping stones answer. I'd love for you to just kind of give our listeners a sense for kind of how you cut your teeth, how you got into this whole world. And then definitely want to uh, want you to kind of share the story for how you were able to found Remotish and some of these other incredible businesses that you're building today. Gosh, it's a long story because I'm old, but um, <laughs> back in the 90s, I'm dating myself, but back in the 90s, when I was in high school, I, was, I started making websites like on Lycos and Angel Fire and and all those, um, if anybody's familiar with that, GeoCities, and selling them really cheaply. And it's interesting because when I got into college, I started to do a little bit of light consulting. Um, but I also was like a tech girl. So I worked in the computer lab. So I always liked the web. I always liked the computer tech. I was sort of just sitting in that world. It's funny because I was pursuing a uh, international business degree at the time and ended up failing out of some of the <laughs> management classes. And <laughs> nice. up, okay. I, yeah. And I changed my degree to Latin American studies because I think the 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 way I viewed business was the people side. Like, why do people do what they do? How do they make those decisions? Can we influence those decisions? And so it really actually ended up helping me later on in my story as a marketer. Um, but you know, at the time I was sort of exploring entrepreneurship on a personal basis, but always within the realm of digital mar marketing and technology and things like that. Um, I failed out of the classes in college, mostly because they were preparing me at the time, this was 20 years ago, to be like a manager in an organization. Like for yep. me, yep. business was entrepreneurial business, but they didn't have that at the time. Like now you can go to these schools and you can learn about entrepreneurs and startups and the infrastructure, and all that, but that didn't exist back then. No one was telling me how to start a business. No one was telling me how to hire my first employee or how to build a process or any of that stuff. So um, definitely like course corrected and end up with a degree in Latin American studies of which I'll, I'll do nothing with, but argue points <laughs> with people. That's all I'll do. But that journey sort of while I was freelancing, I was picking up odd jobs, that was sort of satisfying my entrepreneurial needs. And I ended up becoming a mommy blogger. So I, I had a, a child in college and then another one soon after, and it sort of interrupted my ability to launch professionally the traditional way. That's because I became a mommy blogger, I owned a scrapbooking store, and I started blogging about scrapbooking and ended up on page one for a lot of terms. I launched a, a PHP-based web store and started selling my handcrafts online as well as doing like local shows and taking my kids with me. And then I launched an affiliate program. So I had 200 other moms selling wow. my crafts. And I sort of really taught myself the business yeah. of launching a business online without anyone telling me how that works. Yep. Um, and so when I ended up landing my very first corporate job, zero experience, a Latin American studies degree, I ended up getting a job at the San Diego Union Tribune, which was our, our local newspaper, but quite large. And I was an online ads campaign specialist. So all self-taught, all this experience I brought to the table. And it was interesting because then while I was there, I ended up landing in this interesting project, a multi-million dollar project to revamp the ad system for the real estate department that I was working with there to do online ads. That's super That's cool. We, we found real estate online. And so what was really interesting was here I was, this young 26-year-old given a multi-million dollar budget to help PM this project because no one know, knew what they were doing online at the time. And so that's where the tools and the people part started coming together for me because no one knew how to unify them. Either you were tech savvy yep. and you knew how the tool worked 
or you people savvy and you know yep. how to talk to people, but like, how do you bring them together in a project? And I had to figure that out really early. And so that was actually, I think the catalyst of future jobs, future projects, that one moment where it showed me I could take all these pieces that I knew yep. and actually make a really like imp- big impact on a business. Like we, That's awesome. we, we really did a great job when we launched that, that project. And I was so young that I think I was gifted the ability to sort of arrive at this place in my career earlier. Yep. And then I ended up launching a business later on. This is my second iteration of an agency. Um, but I think that was the catalyst for a lot I, of it. I, I First of all, I, uh, that's number one, why I loved you the first minute I, I met you was because like, you just nailed it. Number one, it's like, we can have all the tools in the world. We can have all the technology in the world. If people don't know why they have to use them or if they don't know how to use them, then none of it matters. The second second big part is like, I love um, how you ended up in a big business after doing all this stuff because I don't think people, Nicole, I don't think people that have ever had to start their own shop or start their own business or do their own thing, people that are super smart and super, super experienced that have worked in big companies their whole life, you don't have to do all of the different hat wearing. You don't necessarily always have to figure stuff out. For I, I think one of the biggest things as an entrepreneur, you are constantly learning. And if you're not learning and if you're not failing, you're probably going out of business or you're looking for a job because like that's part of it. Part of it is keeping your own blade as sharp as possible every single solitary day. The other part is you're doing it through necessity. Like when you're when you're starting these businesses, you have you have to just learn so many different things every single it's almost at, at times it's daunting, right? You have to learn so many different things that you didn't think you would. Um, and it takes a while to get to the point where you have the luxury of being able to hire that SME or being able to outsource some of that, that, that those specific needs. But um, I absolutely love that. And I love the team and the tools part because I think that's, I think our world is going to be in for an interesting run the next 10 years with software just keeps growing at an alarming clip. People don't always necessarily know how to use it or they don't feel supported with the information that they need to be able to use a baseline. And then I would argue most companies aren't really doing a fantastic job of measuring utilization. They measure every other thing or they measure every single solitary, every single solitary part of their financial game. They don't really measure what they're investing in the tech. And then they also don't measure how that impacts employee experience or like whether or not people feel great about showing up to work every day. So all this stuff, I love it. It's a fantastic um, way to set the stage. In terms of, um, before we dive into the pillars, talk a little bit about remoteish. Um, I'd love to kind of have you share with the, um, the listeners, what you guys are doing and the team that you're building. Yeah. So it's funny because we used to be called Chief Martech Officer. And it was because I really liked the acronym CMO that people would call us their CMO. So b- branding is a little bit of a, a side passion of mine. So we we started off doing a light agent uh, marketing agency work, but more on the technical side, the Martech world work. And then when COVID hit, we we just went full bore into the technology side and we got rid of all of our marketing services. And because our name was Chief Martech Officer, it was sort of pigeonholing us to only working with marketing leaders versus if you think about it now, service leaders, sales leaders, like operations leaders, they're all involved now in the revenue engine and the revenue tools and they all have their place. And so we work with all of them, but our name was not implying that. So we rebranded and and we rebranded because we said, you know what? businesses need to pivot. Like as an entrepreneur, this might have to happen again. We may have to pivot again. I don't want to rebrand every time 
I change the intention of my business. Like we need to grow out of that. It's great to have a business name that speaks to what you do yep. if you never plan to change. Yep. But I yep. am an I'm an agile and adapted entrepreneur. I will just chase what I need to to stay relevant, to stay in business, to continue to deliver value to myself, to my employees, to my clients. And and it's not a, usually a swift evolution. It takes time. But yep. for us, we really loved being remote. We were remote before COVID. Um, we we wanted to speak to the way we do our work and the things that we're passionate about. And so we named ourselves remote-ish, which I love it. You know, we do still like to be together. We do still like to see each other. So we're remote-ish. It's not like a hundred percent. We want to get together an event once a year. You know, we want to see each other occasionally and visit each other. So we're very remote-ish. And so that became our new name. And so under the new umbrella of a remote-ish, we focused entirely on HubSpot, which is a CRM platform um, services. So implementation, strategy, training, things like that. And we're just very, 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 very niche. But our name, I think, is bigger. And I think over the years, we'll have to fill the shoes of a bigger name and widen our niche because I, I think the name deserves it. Well, so first of all, I love that. I think that you're, you're, you're right where the learning and development world is about to change rapidly, right? I think so many companies uh, historically had the opportunity to be able to have people in an office, in a working environment. There was there was some control to the environment. Number one, COVID put every single one of us in a position where you had to get comfortable with remote, whether you loved it or you hated it, didn't matter, had to. Number two, a lot of companies found a tremendous amount of really positive gains by flipping to a remote world, whether that meant productivity went up, whether that meant traditional costs were able to go away, whether that was big, expensive uh, office in Manhattan or San Francisco. And then I think the last part is both employees and customers got options, right? So there was the ability to go back and forth between either doing it remote or doing it in person. But like, there's a new norm here, right? And I know that we're still seeing all these articles every single solitary week about all these big employers are going to be calling their employees back to the office. And maybe, maybe that might, might that might happen. And maybe some industries, it's going to be helpful. But for people like us that are building online and working with companies that are primarily in the cloud, they're connected, they can literally do their job or do their services anywhere. This is definitely not going anywhere, right? This remote culture is very much here to say, but companies still need help with getting better at it. And then I think um, the other thing too, is just like, we're going to keep seeing all these different twists and turns for companies that are doing it extremely well, or even customer expectations, right? Customer expectations will continue to evolve, they'll continue to change. And you just mentioned that that pivoting piece, that being flexible, being pliable. Companies of tomorrow are only going to survive by being super, super flexible, super pliable, and responding to things on, you know, on, on, on a dime so that they can actually stay alive and they can actually find more customers that appreciate that. So I, I love all that. Um, Nicole, let's talk about the first six pillar of team. Can you talk about sort of how two things, this is a two-sided question, because number one, you get to work with a bunch of incredible teams, but I'd love for you to start, give us a sense for how you started to build your team at Remotish. And then I'd love to kind of just hear some of the things that you and your team have really kind of learned around prime focus areas or prime investment areas when it comes to team building and when it, when it comes to team leadership and management. Yeah, um, it was interesting because as an agency, so for, for my model, and most agencies are like this, you're a consultant first. You're you're the you're the product. You're the the saleswoman. You're the servicer. You're the invoicer. <laughs> you know you prepare your own taxes. You're everything, 
And then you start to look at like what you don't like to do or what you're not good at and you break off chunks of you. And that's all of a sudden where you flip to an agency, right? Micro agency and you grow. And so early on, some of the things that I started to pull off of me were like account management, project management that allowed me to be the strategic head, but still create a great amount of organization for my clients because our clients often have valued us because of our PM and our organization and our systems and our processes, not just our expert consulting. And then over time, um, as I grew up sort of in my business, I fired myself from servicing. Now somebody else is the product, not me. And then I fired myself from sales. Somebody else does the selling, not me. So now my selling matches my service delivery. Uh, there was an issue where I would sell and I would sell at such a level that would just, just impress the pants off of anybody. And then I'd hand them off to my team that compared to me is quite junior. You know, they don't have 20 years of business experience and 25 years of a consulting experience. And so I needed to make sure we sold and we serviced at the same level. So expectations were clear. And then I hired management, I hired operations. And so I've gotten further and further from the day-to-day of the business. And now I'm here for a vision. I'm here for coaching, mentorship, guidance. I'm here for strategy, uh, more so working on the business versus in. And what's interesting, I'm going to note this because I think it's very relevant probably to this audience. At the beginning of 2022, we were about 22 people. We, we grew rapidly. We doubled in size for several years. And now we're at eight. So we've sized down, but I'm still operating the same way. I still don't do my servicing. I still don't do my selling and I still don't do the majority of my agency operations because the systems and processes and people have already been put in place. I didn't need to regress. We just sized down our servicing team to match our clientele. And, and that's will probably speak to further conversations and the way I think and, and to set the stage that having all of the right people in the right seat, right? Like hiring people to do a very particular function, not distributing hats too much, like really making sure people are doing what they need to do, um, you know, documenting tribal knowledge so that when change happens, the company is still stood up and making sure that the company is not dependent on any one person, including myself to operate. So that's kind of how I constructed my team as it sized up, as it sized down, as it's changed. I've always kept that in mind and that has benefited my selling, my servicing, you know, my, my marketing, any, any function I've had, it's benefited it because we, operate way more efficiently that way I, well I, number one i think is it's efficiency but also you just nailed it which is like the faster you can get out of your own way as a founder the better the other part is the minute that you have the fortune of being able to afford great people that have tons of experience in very specific areas i look i know founders i'll i'll, I'll we're, many of us are like we're, we're doers we get stuff done we'll run through a wall we'll we'll battle through resiliency all that stuff but like there's other people that know how to do this stuff faster, smarter, more efficiently. The other part is I love what you talked about where piece by piece, you were able to kind of delegate off and, and move off things that you had proven, you had figured out, you did kind of get a taste for what it is and how it's working to grow your business. And then you replace it with somebody that could probably do it at 10 times the rate, right? So that probably allowed your business to grow. Second piece is just like with the scaling up and scaling down part right now, it's funny. We see all these articles every single Saturday week about all these companies laying off and, and, and you know, all these people um, losing jobs. And obviously it's terrible, but a lot of companies were forced to do exactly what you just said, where they looked really, really hard at all these different teams, all these different departments, all these different roles. And they had a, a conversation around brass tacks for what they think that they could get by. Also, just lastly, like 
we're in a different world, right? We're in a different world where, I mean, companies that can have a smaller group of Navy SEALs that are like getting all of this stuff done, probably going to have a higher quality product, probably going to have people that are happier to be there working on that. And then depending on sort of how things work financially, you have more possibilities of spreading some of that love and spreading some of that wealth around. So I, I love that. Um, before we jump from teams, there's been like one or two things that you've seen with all the clients you've worked with over the last you know 20 plus years. What is like one thing that you want our listeners to think about when it comes to like team building? If there was like one or two main areas that you really, you talked about delegation, you talked about finding people that can do this stuff better, but if there's like one or two areas that you've seen some of your clients just knock it out of the park on the team side, what, what would it be? You know, it's funny because before COVID, I, I feel like it was very rare to even hear companies talk about culture, right? To, to talk about their sort of unique operating system, the way we speak about things, the way we do things, the way we believe things as a, as a unit. And I think ha- fostering intentional culture is what I've seen singles out the great clients that we work with from the ones that you know, we, when you're in the agency world or in the consulting world, and you have a good relationship with your clients, you you tend to get a little bit of a look under the hood. And you get to see the dysfunction that exists. You sometimes hear of employees looking for work elsewhere before their employer knows because that relationship has been built. Um, and I think it all comes down to culture alignment. I mean, every business has a culture fit. Every business out there, even the most toxic workplaces, will have someone who likes that culture. And so articulating what your culture is, documenting what your culture is, like like being able to show what it is so that it attracts the right people, it nurtures the right people, and it keeps the right people is the best way to go. It's when you attempt to be everything for everyone. It's the same. It's funny because it's like, you know, culture internally, I think, is like, like product market fit externally. And if your message isn't clear for your customers, if you're not attracting the right customers, you're going to have horrible customers, horrible customer relationships, horrible feedback loops. You know, you're going to have bad reviews on Yelp, all this stuff, because there's no alignment. It doesn't mean that your product's bad. It's going to be good for someone. You're just not aligned with who you're selling to and and not being selective. And I think that's the same thing that's happening now where all these companies who did great on making sure their customers were really happy, forgot that their employees are also customers too. And honestly, your employees might be your primary customers. And in theory, your, your customers who pay you money are your investors. And that's how I've, I've always viewed it. So you got to keep your customers happy so your investors are getting the return they want. And especially if you're in a service business where your customers are, del- or your um, employees are delivering yeah. the yeah. product if they're not happy and taken care of, if they're not product developed in terms of mentorship and coaching and skill building, they're not going to be good at delivering your offering. And so I think what's happened, I think now is culture as something you actually have to care about. You can't be a victim of it. You have to be intentional. You can't force it, but you have to be intentional about ushering it into a direction that you think is aligning with you know, if you're a founder, your vision, if you're a larger organization, right, whatever has been pre-established is where you're going. And I think it's, it's for some people, it's like a frou-frou term and it's, you know, it's not very important, but it's just a bigger thing. It's just an operating system. It's your internal belief engine. If you don't want to call it coach culture, cause it's too woke for you. Um, yeah. but you have to have a system that everyone believes in that everyone works under. If everyone is counter to the system, if everyone's trying to check, 
challenge the core tenets of your engine, of your business, then they're not a fit because not everything is meant to be revamped. So some things are a basic foundation of why your organization even exists. Yep. I think, I mean, incredibly well said. And I think the other part is just, this is why you're seeing such a major uptick in the investment of of, of EX or employee experience. I think I'm, I, I, I say it all the time in the show, but I'm a firm believer that like, if you want world-class CX, you have to start with EX. You just do. You have to make sure it's exactly what you just said, where the people delivering, building, or just even speaking about the products and services that you're putting out there have to be bought in. They have to be engaged. They have to be um, supported. All of those things are directly related to your ability to scale, your ability to grow, and your ability to hit the, the goals that you're putting in front of you. So I, awesome, all awesome stuff. Nicole, I'd love to talk about second CX pillar tools. Um, spend a few minutes talking about, I, I definitely want to talk about HubSpot, but I'd love to hear from you. Like, What were some of the initial tools that you invested in, or how did you even think about what handful of tools you were going to set up to build your initial tech stack when you were starting your business? You know, it's it's funny because my business doesn't necessarily need HubSpot to operate, right? There's it's people are proven to have successful multi-million dollar businesses in a spreadsheet. So it's it's not that it's necessary. It just definitely makes the margins nicer and, and makes it more efficient. And I think there's a lot of tools like that where it's it's a nice to have, it's an enablement, but like in theory, could you still run your business without it? And, and for me, the things that I couldn't run my business without was, you know, I needed a Google suite or some sort of email and calendaring engine, right? Um, and then I needed some sort of accounting and billing engine. And that's kind of all I needed. And that's kind of all I started with, really. And um, I think people think they need so much more. And for me, I always challenge us to go, could we do the process manually first and understand all its points and what's involved? before we bring in a tool. And I think a lot of times we look at a tool and then we go, okay, the tool can make our process better. And and that's great. But if you don't have a well-defined understanding of the process before the tool ever existed, then you might be over-engineering what you're trying to do just because it's available as a feature in your tools. So my, my best tool, I would say, is the lack of tool because you need to be your first prototype of any process manually. And you need to, if you can't do it manually, then there's no tool that's ever going to make it better, in my opinion. Yep, I, I 100% agree. And I just think that this is why we have officially have a software problem in the world right now of business because of exactly what you said. I think like with us at CXC, Nicole, we will start off our client engagements with doing like our scorecards and our journey maps for one reason. We're trying to dump puzzle pieces onto a table just to understand how to start sorting and building piles. And we constantly see companies that like, they'll literally go from one tool to another, to another, to another. The root of the problem is utilization. The root of the problem is missing comprehension around what's expected for why that tool is there. The root of the problem, especially with some of these, some of these venture back startups, like then you start to, once your team starts to grow, people come in with their playbooks. So you have the marketing person wants their tool. You have the salesperson wants their tool. You have the success person wants their tool. Product has the... And then before you know it, you're missing the opportunity to create a manual journey that actually shows you what, how the hell you're going to stitch all this stuff together, number one. And then number two, this is why like some of this, when people, you see all this stuff out there around voice of customer reporting, voice of customer uh, dashboards, like, well, when people are using 17 tools or 25 tools, 
This is why all of a sudden it becomes a data science problem. And it's way bigger than a few leaders being able to get around the table and see what's important. So like, couldn't agree with that more. What do you think, how do companies force themselves to actually stay in a manual place when they're growing rapidly? Is there a way that they can really try to kind of pump the brakes or sort of govern not just going out and getting the next shiny tool? Or have you seen anything that's kind of worked? Or is there some things that you try to advise your clients to do in terms of slowing down before they make that investment? I think there's a misconception that like every tool is going to make life easier. And and it's it's not. Every tool that comes in needs an administrator of the tool. So I would say only buy as many tools as you can administer well. And if you can't administer it well, you're probably going to be more efficient doing it manually. It may feel like more work, but it, it's going to cause more problems when now everybody has to learn to be an administrator of the tool or adoption is poor or data is getting put in incor- incorrectly. And so I, I've read of, I've arrived at a place where I've sort of eaten some of my own words from the past. And, and I'm like, every, I think almost everybody needs to downsize what yep. they're doing. I think yep. that they need to focus like 80% on the process and the people and then 20% on the tool yep. and, and the engineering that needs to be put in place is to make sure that people all know their next step in line, whether it's enabled by a tool or it's enabled manually, I don't care. But if, if everyone's confused Yep. Um, then there's a problem. And so for me, I'm kind of like going down this, this, this path of foundational work that we all, I think, need to determine what is our foundation. Yep. That's the non-negotiable never go away. Right. Like you said, what tools I will never operate without my calendar and my email system. Yep. Like I just can't have a business without it. And so if we look at our foundational tools to be able to deliver our work, our foundational tools that were like, without this, we fundamentally could not be profitable enough or we could not deliver the product as promised. So another tool I use is teamwork.com, which is not only our agency's PM system, we add our clients in there, there's client communications that we do our billables, we get to track margins, like it is a backbone of my agency, I would get rid of HubSpot, even as a HubSpot partner before I would get rid of teamwork, because as an agency, that is a pivotal tool for me. And so I, I think we just need to go back to a world where we understand the foundations of our business, what is the people foundation? What are the roles we need? Yep. What is the tool foundation? What are the tools we need to deliver on our work? That's like this tool is being sold with our service or being sold with our ability to produce. You know, what are the core processes that are unique to us? Not just to deliver the work, but it's like, for me, it's like the remotish way of delivering the work, our yep. secret sauce, right? And, and if we can't maintain that foundation because we're getting distracted by new tools and new people or new ways or new playbooks, like you said, everybody comes in with their no, new idea without yep. being institutionalized and in what existed pre- previously and does it even need to change at all. Yep. Um, I think a lot of us just with the growth, with I think the the economy gave us distractions. I think, you know, investors caused us to chase the wrong things. I think people were put in advisory situations that shouldn't have been advising us. I think we need to get back to the basics, the basics of every function. I think we need to be able to repetitively deliver success on a basic foundation before we seek to try to improve it or be something fancy. And I don't know how many times I've had clients or people I've I've talked to or business owners, and I'm like, you just need to cut like all this out, go yep. back to this layer of stuff, you know, this, this, and this, if you can do that really well, add another layer. And if you can do both of them really well, then add another layer. Yep. But if yep. you if you start to see cracks in your foundation, you need to pull it back. And I think we need to exercise restraint. 
and and not chase everything that looks cool and new and fancy. I know we're in this AI boom and it's like, we have to make sure though that the foundation never leaves. Like the, the tenants of operating a business have been around for thousands of years, right? Yep. I exchange money yep. with you and you give me a service and I'm happy or I'm not and I'll come back or I won't. And, you know, it's like there's basics that have never changed since the beginning of time. But but we're trying to like find shortcuts to yep. ignore the basics. Yep. I, so I agree with everything you said. I think the one thing that you keep bringing up that I just couldn't agree with more is like the ongoing documentation or the ongoing uh history i mean part of part of why uh cx chronicles for me was about chronicling all the things that are happening as your business evolves both internally and externally right so if you're chronicling everything that's happening on the employee side chronicling all the good and the bad and the ugly on the uh customer side you've got the history directly in front of you and then you can build upon that history for your future right to the tools part i totally agree i think every single one of our listeners right now have a think on like do a basic utilization rate on your tech stack. Anything that hasn't been touched by the majority of your teammates in the last 30, 60, 90 days, have a really hard conversation around whether or not you need that tool. The other thing is every every one of the CXCS RevOps leaders that I'm talking to, everyone's talking about not having the budget that they used to have or not having the same spendability. You're probably going to find a ton of money right inside of your existing tech stack if you actually run that exercise and see what you're not using or what your team doesn't want or what, what you just could literally do without you could save a ton of money that way. So um, all, all awesome ideas here. Nicole, you started to bring us into process. Let's talk about the third pillar of process. As you've grown your business and just as you've worked with all these different companies and teams, um, how have you kind of thought about the, so you talked about the documentation, but like what are some of the ways you've done it? What are some of the exercises or what are some of the ways you've maybe tasked it to a team? How do you kind of think about curating process and then being able to socialize process? Yeah, I think I think process is another one that's gotten over-engineered too. So process and so people are already complicated, like naturally. We like we can't affect that, but we can impact tools and process. They don't have to be so complicated. And I think we all want this like white glove, gold star standard of delivering work, but we think it's because it needs to be an over-engineered, highly complex process. And so that's another one where we have to scale it back. So not only are we scaling back our tools, I think our processes need to be simplified. A standard operating procedure in my mind, an SOP is like, you follow every single thing on this list to the T because there's some sort of compliance need for that situation. But I think a lot of people confuse a process with like a checklist of actual tasks to do. And while there are SOPs and there are like checklists like work, the vast majority of process is like a guide, right? Like this is the, the, the starting state. This is the ending state. Here's all the valuable touch points or the things that should or possibly occur. You know, you want to do the most, the majority of them, but, but if we're hiring smart people, if they're bought into our vision, if they've been well-trained on our methodologies, there should be an element of judgment that they should be able to use as long as they're speaking to the integrity of the process and hitting the end goal. And so I think we need to think about process more as like, um, you know, documenting an, uh, an intention versus documenting a step-by-step guide, like a training manual. Those are very different 
things, in my opinion. But everyone's sort of calling it the same thing. So we're having a bit of tension right now where yep. some people have had lovely guide-based, intention-based, uh, outcome-based processes. And they're like, I have freedom. I can use my judgment. If if A is not no relevant anymore, I can take the client or the process down a different pathway. And as long as there's a good customer experience, that anomaly I'm able to navigate versus people who have been living in an over-engineered engine yep. who misstep one one place and then they're you know on a pip <laughs> and 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 they're having a horrible reaction to process. And so they're basically going anti-process, right? Hey, like they're yep. so to the point where even if they know a process is good, they're like, but I hate process in general. It's constricting. It gets rid yep. of my creativity or I've gotten in trouble in the past. And there's this great divide happening right now, right? The process pros and the process like anti-processors. And so what we need to do, I think, is just get better at speaking to like, what is a process? Why does it exist? What are we trying to document? Like, what is the spirit of what we want someone to do? And so when I talk to clients, I'm like, is this an SOP? Is there a compliance component? If yep. someone doesn't follow every step, is do they get in trouble? Yep. Right? Because there are things like that. Like when you're hiring somebody, you have to follow all the steps, you know, when right. you're, you know, in the HR function, very compliance. When you're in the tax function, financials, procurement, there's certain things that it's like has to be delivered in this way. And so if your service is involved in that or if the role is involved in that, makes a whole lot of sense. But then there's some things where it's like, if you sent the email first, or, you know, you know, ping somebody on Slack second, it, it doesn't matter. Here, here's all the things that possibly should occur. If these things, I think we need to give people more freedom. I think we need to give them options. Yep. I think we need to process like the process needs to be more um, based on coaching and training to do better work that's going closer to our goal. And then we need to let our people who are in there going, I have a good idea. I have a better way of doing this. Yep. I have an improvement that not only would improve this for me, but improve it for everyone else. And so speaking back to your question about how we do with clients is right now, I'm just focusing more on changing people's perception of like how they label things. You know, is this a process? Is this an SOP? Where does the information live? Yep. You know, and, and how much control some processes are very loose. We're like a and B and, Everything between A and B and the end goal is up to you because you've been well-trained and you know what to do. And that's where your creative space exists. And I think that's a part of the problem is people are being taught that process is like control. Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't like to be controlled, especially nope. if you value them for their smarts. Like you, you just have to give them a range. And, yeah. and that's my mind is process is more of a range with a start and an end point that's very clear, but everything inside has scales of what could be delivered. I love that. Um, one follow-up question. Are there any interesting mediums that you're seeing companies actually wrangling their process? So like we've talked a lot about writing. So, uh, so I'm imagining playbooks or knowledge bases or, or FAQs. Have you seen any other mediums that companies are using that makes it even easier to just simply provide a range and then people can take a, whether it's a video or an internal podcast or uh, even just internal content, right? Internal content that a company produces to make sure people understand the range and then they can work within it. Is there any like new mediums that you're seeing emerging or that you're seeing companies kind of killing it with 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 managing the process? Um, I think it just depends on the company. It depends on their culture of documentation. Um, and so understanding what that culture of documentation is very important. So for us, a lot of our 
our task-based processes or our delivery processes, like when we're delivering something to somebody is in our project management system where the range of steps are there. They can check them off. There's additional educational elements because the first time somebody runs through the process, they may need more context, but the 15th time they've ran through it, they can ignore it. They don't need it anymore. Um, I know a lot of people who use knowledge bases and videos and knowledge bases. In my mind, a knowledge base is difficult because a knowledge base can also be a store of data. And so that's a part of it too, where a lot of these tools used to document processes are also being used to document other things. And people are not differentiating between here is data, like a, like an employee manual, right. Or terms of working with you versus here's how we're going to deliver something. Those are different things. And so if we're going to use a mixed use system, like a knowledge base, like an ocean or a HubSpot knowledge base, uh, we just need to have like careful segmentation of what this data is. Um, And it's funny because I think, I think the method of documenting the process doesn't necessarily matter so much. There's no like hard or fast rule on the perfect way to do it. Honestly, just doing it is the biggest hurdle for most people. And for me, I like to guide people to just use a spreadsheet um, because I think it makes it simple. I think it makes it easy. I think you can uh, duplicate work, right? Copy cells, you can make calculations and really make your life simple. So at least for the planning stage, right? And you can structure things really well. And and I don't have to be beholden to where it ends up, right? So let's just talk about something in a structure that makes a whole lot of steps, right? Or where we're trying to go, labeling things, putting notes. It's a very collaborative tool, And then once you see the complexity of the process, like maybe it's a very complex process that does need to have a supplemental training in a learning management system, Yep. right? Maybe the process is so complex that even even then it needs to have reference to four other tools that are involved in the process. So maybe that has to go in a knowledge-based system, or maybe that becomes a PDF because it's so institutionalized as the core of who we are. So I, I think... I think the tools, going back to even the work delivery, the tool shouldn't define how you how you do your planning, how you gather the information. The most basic tool, at least organizational for me, is something like a like a, a visual workflowing tool or a spreadsheet, just something that just lets us collect information. If we were in an office, we'd be on a whiteboard, yep. right? Like, and so those are the tools that I feel like are closest to sort of a freehand whiteboarding situation to allow me to figure out what I need to do to move it to a more sophisticated tool to deliver based on the intention of the process. I love it. I think that's awesome. Um, and, and, and you're spot on where it's just, it depends on the business. It depends on the team. It depends on the customer set. There's all of these different variables. Um, Nicole, I'd love to dive into the fourth and final pillar of feedback. Spend a few minutes talking about as you grew your business, as you've worked with more and more customers, what are some of the simplest ways that you've been able to collect, assess, and act upon your customer feedback? And then I'd love to kind of hear how you've been able to use your employee feedback over the years to be able to grow your business and find new customers and continue to find find new opportunities out there in the world. I mean, the number one challenge is just getting it, um, like making people feel safe that they can deliver it to you and that it won't backfire on the relationship. It won't be perceived poorly. It won't go into a void, right? So just building a a relationship, a culture, I use that word, but people don't love that word all the time. So building a culture of feedback from customers, from whatever, where you receive it. I I think receiving feedback is an art. It's honest, honestly, like I think people want to give it, but when they've suffered 
with people who've received it poorly, like it, it, it really sucks, right? When you give feedback too often and someone's defensive or, or, you know, maybe you weren't perfect in articulating it, but your intentions were good. And all of a sudden you're the feedback you're getting from the feedback is like, Oh crap, I can't get feedback. I'm so horrible at this. It's so true. Yeah. Creating a relationship where feedback feels good to give um, is just number one, right? Like figuring out what to do with it is number two, but number one is like making it happen. <laughs> It's number one. Um, number two, I feel like that's another one where if you can't receive feedback manually, then no tool is going to make it even easier to receive the feedback. Totally if you don't have a relationship to to gather that from people on a manual way. And I almost would even say I'm not speaking to scale. I'm not speaking to software companies, but I would say anyone in a service based business of any sorts, no tool is going to give you better feedback than if you can just talk to somebody. Um, and unless you're having super micro interactions, like with software, then a lot of these tools, I think are, are overblown and sort of almost even add distance between you and your customer. That, that feedback engine is a part of good customer service, good employee service. Um, and, and being able to gather that, I think a lot of times you just have to ask too, and you have to ask more than once. So for example, the first time you ask for feedback, you're probably going to get, oh, we're doing great. You know, maybe here's a small thing, but they're not trying to offend you, right? And then you ask again and you say, hey, got your feedback last time. This is how we fixed it. We need more. Tell me more. Tell me more what we can do better. And then you start to to blossom that relationship of delivering feedback. And I think we wait. We wait till a year or we wait till we completed some big thing to be like, are you happy? But if we were sort of asking feedback when life was boring, you're going to find out there's actually a lot that they want to tell you. Absolutely. You may be thinking everything's fine on your end because everything's calm, but on their end, they might be super annoyed because you do something or they might have felt disregarded when you, you know, said their deadline wasn't important or whatever. And so for me, I think feedback honestly needs to be manual. And I'm sure everybody in the, the, the CX world who's built their bread and butter on using tools for it, I feel like I, I just, maybe I'm just going through everyone and I'm like, everything first has to start an manual version. And then if you arrive at a painful state where scale is required, doesn't mean that you can't use a tool that sends the email that asks for the feedback or that sent, you know, that sends a meeting link so we can have it. It's not that you can't be enabled by the tool, but if the tool is the one asking for the feedback and then receiving it and, and you're putting distance between that moment, I don't know. I think you lose all the flavor of what you could get. I, I think you are spot on. I also just think like people do business with other people. I know whether it's a technology or a service, but like people want to work with other people, right? Especially people they like and people that they feel that they're being listened to or that understand their problem, understand their challenges, understand the things that they're going through. Nicole, this was absolutely awesome. Before I let you go, where can people get in touch with you and where can people learn more about um, the awesome work that you guys are doing here at Modish? Yeah, so my website is remotish.agency. If you happen to be in a very niche space of, of HubSpot, RevOps, technical services, I know not everybody fits in that category, but I'm a pro prolific networker. I post a lot on LinkedIn. Honestly, if you send me a DM on LinkedIn, you'll probably get a faster response than an email in my inbox. <laughs> so that is a reliable place to, to find me. And I'm in tons of Slack groups and people might see me in those realms and I, pu I publish about it, but I'm always open to a connect. I'm always open to a, a podcast chat like this. I, I tend to be a pretty easy podcast guest because I'm very impromptu. So um, I welcome anybody to connect and, and reach out and uh, I try to be as available as possible. 
I love it. Well, Nicole, it's been our pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the CX Chronicles podcast. Um, amazing story, all this awesome wisdom that you have. I'm going to be pumped to uh, continue uh, chatting with you in the future. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the CX Chronicles podcast. We're thrilled to have you as a part of the CX Nation, tuning in to customer-focused business leaders from across the world. Be sure to check out the CXC website, and as always, find us on any of your favorite podcast players, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Thanks so much for making this show a reality and being a part of the CX Nation. And as always, folks, remember to make happiness a habit.